The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, markets and politics, Wall Street, cuisine. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. As far as like the actual technical cooking standpoint, I don't have a mentor or a chef that I worked under that influenced me or anything like that. It's like I have the food I ate when I was younger and the obsession to research about food. And so from there, it's like I just learn techniques that I really like and then I implement them and I just cook them over and over and over again. In one RVA minute, he was a 20-year-old college dropout looking to make rent by gigging at restaurants and cafes, pretty much whatever they'd throw at him. In the next, while running an in-demand pop-up concept, he gets a call from a casting agent for an HBO cooking series and comes back to town with $300,000 in grand prize seed funding. Life, it comes at you fast. Our guest, Chef Daniel Harthausen, winner of season one of The Big Brunch. Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. A shout out to our listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me in studio is Daniel Harthausen, Richmond chef and creator of the pop-up Young Mother, a real popular pop-up at Adara, right? Yep. And he won HBO Max's first season of The Big Brunch, which <laughs> stuck him with a $300,000 prize. He's all of 27 years old and he's taking names. How are you, sir? How's it going? Glad to be here. I'm fascinated by your career arc because we were discussing offline kind of some of the travails of starting out as a chef in your early 20s and finding the right gig and jumping from place to place. Tell us how you got here and how this big opportunity landed on your lap. Yeah, it's a funny, funny journey. I mean, I, I moved to Richmond with the intention to learn how to cook. And I was all but 19, 18, 19 years old, dropped out of college after my first year. Moved up here, was like, this is like the closest city I lived. I was in Newport News at the time. And I was like, I need to find a restaurant to work in. From there, it was kind of just like a combination of needing to make rent and uh, having a job and also trying to learn. And so it was really just a, a product of needing to get a bunch of money. And so I was working like two jobs, six days a week. But from there, it was kind of like I was able to ingest a lot of this, a lot from this industry and try to like learn as much as I can, you know, balancing at the time I was doing um, barista work. And then I was also working in a kitchen late at night. And then from there, you know, it was like I actually uh, at my job at uh, Alchemy Coffee in, in Richmond, I was able to Eric, who runs it, was able to give me the, my first opportunity of like cooking what I wanted to. It was like I didn't really understand the idea of a pop up at the time, but it was kind of like he was like, hey, if you want to cook some food, like. So back up, back up. Yeah, for me. Yeah. Was there parental heartbreak with the dropping, dropping out? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was kind of like uh, you like getting kicked out of the house, couch surfing for six months, and then like saving up enough money to find my own place kind of you situation. Just got, college just wasn't for you. You got the cooking itch? I didn't get the cooking itch when I dropped out. I just wasn't, I just knew it wasn't where I wanted to be. I was in for, I was going to go into the medical field. I was like in a accelerated like master's program and kind of had it all laid out. One of those things where it's like, you see where you're at like eight years from now and you're starting right now. And it was kind of like, I got a little nervous after the first year and I was like, I don't think I want to be here. And then it was one of those moments where 
up to that point, I think in my life, I hadn't been very aware of what I really wanted to do. And so at that moment, I was like, maybe you should figure that out for yourself. Where did you go for this vision quest? I mean, what were you talking to people? Was there see we 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 like to dwell on these moments of inception, like these aha moments. Were there mentors that you sought out? Was there an exploratory committee? Did you spend weekends in the big city? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest, it was like a lot more dreary than that. I feel like when I first went to college, I was like so stressed out and I didn't really know why. And I hadn't dealt with that amount of stress, even though I like I've consider myself somebody who works really well under pressure. From that, you know, you get into like drugs and alcohol partying, things like this, and you start to like really question like what you're even doing there. And for me, it was a lot of solitary moments, I think, mm. you know, trying to do well in school because I knew that's what I had to do, but I didn't want to. And then from there, the stress kind of pushed me into these other avenues that I also didn't want to be a part of because I knew it was hurting me ultimately. So yeah, and it's and it's funny because when you take the time to really like look at yourself in those moments where you know something's wrong, but you can't really figure it out, you allow yourself the opportunity to grow and find something that you really want to be in and find out who you truly want to be. You know, all that to say, it was kind of like I didn't figure out that moment where I wanted to be a chef until I needed a job, mm. <laughs> you know, and the first place that would take me was the kitchen. Um, I think that's a, a likely story for a lot of people. But for me, it was like, Immediately, I think when I stepped foot and I started to work, I like, I loved it. Mm. It's kind of that moment where you like find that calm in your head. Like sometimes when you have so many things going on, you can't really concentrate and you're just trying to like keep it all together. When I'm cooking, it's like everything kind of goes silent and I'm kind of just like focused on what I'm doing. And I became addicted to that sensation almost because I had never felt something like that before. Wow. And and yeah, it's it, that was like the ultimate shifting point, I think. You know, if I would never have dropped out of college, I would have never gotten that job. I would never figured out that I loved this and I would never be where I am today. Tell me about your upbringing. So was it spent in the kitchen or mentored by people who had great culinary skills? Yeah. Um, you know, my parents divorced when I was younger, but my stepmom who moved in with us uh, when I was around nine or 10, an amazing cook. And she was essentially like, you know, we're one of those families. We never, you know, we never ate out. We always ate in. My mom cooked every meal breakfast, packed lunch, dinner, ate as a family. But it wasn't ever like a thing where like, you know, I loved it because it was also one of the times like where we could also be together as a family. We were a little detached. I think family is like very conservative, Korean, religious family. And uh, it was, there's a lot of rules around that kind of come with that upbringing, but very talented cook. My grandmother lived with us for I think half of my childhood. And so she would cook in the kitchen a lot. And there was a lot of times where like, I mean, you know, when I think back to it in context of like my occupation now, it's like, yeah, like I loved eating, obviously, but I also loved watching and like ingesting. And it was that moment where I was like, kind of when you find out you're obsessed with learning something, I don't know if it was like inherently something that was that like I was born with. I wouldn't say that, but it was more of like this thing where I was curious as to why there were so many rituals around Korean food that I didn't know existed. I could just observe because they would do the same things whenever they were making certain types of kimchi. They would do the same things when they're making like, you know, marinated crabs like kanjang gejang or like when they would do things around certain certain holidays. And like, I would always see the same, same dishes during chuseok or like new year. And it was like these like patterns that I started to pick up when I was younger that I started to get like really, really obsessed about. And then I was like, I think when I started to ask questions was when there was a little bit of a shift in my younger years 
um, because there was a bit of a pushback. I don't want to speak for like all Korean Americans experiences, but at least in my experience, they said like men aren't supposed to cook. You're not supposed to like, you know, this isn't something you need to learn, like focus on other stuff. And I think that was like, and then just being like a preteen at the time, I was like, why not? Like, I want to learn. Like, why are you telling me I can't do this? Just feeling a little rebellious. And so that was a little bit another motivator for me. But all that to say, I mean, I think I was very fortunate to grow up with two women that knew that were extremely good cooks. And I think it's a, it's a big part of the baseline for me to know like what tastes good which I think is a huge part of chefs need they need to have. Um, and it, and I was very fortunate to like kind of figure that out in my own little realm with Korean food. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Daniel Hardhausen. He's a chef and owner of Young Mother RVA and a bit of a TV celebrity. He won season one of The Big Brunch on HBO Max as hosted by Dan Levy of, of uh, Schitt's Creek. I guess I'm allowed to say that on yeah. <laughs> uh, public radio. Uh, you spent time abroad. Yeah, yeah. Um, so military family, dad's in the Air Force. Spent a little bit of time in Germany, lived in Okinawa, Japan, and lived in uh, Pyeongtaek, Korea. It's about an hour and a half south of Seoul. So was there time in like, you know, the Yangyam district or in Seoul itself, spending time with the quality foods there? I mean, I tried to steep myself in New York and Los Angeles. I'm a huge fan of the cuisine. I mean, we even have it here in Richmond yeah. to a certain extent. Yeah, it's it's fun. I was like, um, I got to spend my freshman year of high school in Korea, and it was kind of a fun time to just like public transportation in Korea is amazing. So it's like you can just kind of get around anywhere, and it was a fun time to be able to like you know take the train into Seoul, go to Itaewon, go to Myeongdong, like bigger market areas, and also just kind of like I didn't know a lot about food back then, but it was kind of just like any like I remember from an early age, I always like had the instinct that if there was like a line somewhere that I should go eat there, hmm. and so if there was like a streetcar with a huge line, I was like I'm gonna go see what they're cooking and then usually it'd be like really good hot dog or like tteokbokki or something like that right but it was kind of this experience i think when i was there where i was just trying to like again like you know at the time i didn't have a lot of i wasn't like oh i'm going to be a chef one day so i need to like figure all this stuff out but it was all these like essentially just like happy kind of like high school memories i was having with this traveling through this country that was you know i knew i was a part of the culture but i was also like I'm a Korean American. So right. it was like another aspect of like learning about myself in the context of being in Korea, but also just kind of like hanging out with friends. The Japanese and Koreans seem to have a love-hate relationship. It's fraught with bad history and everything, but there's cuisine overlap. There's appreciation. I mean, you're you're touching a sensitive area. It is. Yeah. Uh, it's a huge sensitive area. And I, I think it's the biggest motivator for me to cook the way that I'm I'm doing right now. I mean, Japanese occupation of Korea is like one of the I mean most sensitive topics I mean, even from like 2018, they had the like a World Cup reporter said that Korea became more prosperous because of Japanese occupation. And it's like, that was a huge hit to the South Korean people. And it's, it is, it's a very sensitive topic. And it's even, even sensitive enough for like even doing what I'm doing right now, where I've, I've received like messages and stuff asking me, like, why, why would you do this? Mm. Because there's so much work in place to kind of push out Japanese culture from the, um, from South Korean culture. And it, and it, is something that I think I respect the sensitive nature to it. And there's even ties to my family, even me as a person being part Japanese that comes from that time. But I think there's something that needs to be said about how those cultures overlap because of this traumatic event. And without that, without kind of touching on it or exploring it, you don't allow people that find identity within being Korean, Japanese, or even Korean American, or any of these concepts of these cultures or these countries that come together and influence each other, 
not having some sort of like growth in figuring out who you want to become or your identity moving. I think I was just like super lost as a kid about who I actually was being from two different countries and then also like occupying space in both of those countries. Sure. Because being in America, it's like Korean, but being in Korea, I'm American. Hmm. And so it always motivated me to try to dive into it a little bit deeper and find what it meant to me um, and not so much how it meant to other people. But then it's like, I don't know, you, you learn about it and it's like, it's insane that this is something that isn't really taught. I didn't learn about Japanese occupation until I was like 19, until I, I was researching it myself. And I was like, never, it was never presented in history books. And even though it's like the whole base of the Korean War is through Japanese occupation, them getting pushed out during World War II and then having it split up between two territories that were supposed to be temporary. It's right. Like, but trying to find those similarities, I think, gives narrative to dishes that aren't really allowed to tell their story. I don't know. The food culture is weird. When you when you see something that starts trending or you see something that like does really well because it tastes good or it looks great, I think at certain points, like that's amazing for that country's culture or for to kind of like prop up somebody's food culture, but it kind of strips it from its identity and you don't allow it to tell its actual story of why it exists. Hmm. And I think it's really important that if we're gonna start playing with different ingredients or doing different techniques or understanding traditional recipes, we need to also understand the context of why those things exist. Tell me about getting here, the big city, as yeah. it were, coming from uh, the Tidewater region. Was yeah. it in getting here, Richard, you get off like a Greyhound bus? Was it like with barely like $5 in your wallet and a dusty suitcase that split apart on the road? We, uh, so I got, I, I convinced my friend to move up with me and he was like- Was it seven years ago? Seven years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So seven years ago, uh, my friend was going to ODU at the time. And I was like, I convinced them somehow to go to VCU. And I was like, dude, move up with me. Let's do this. We took his beaten down Prius, packed it up with all our stuff. And then we got a three bedroom apartment or like a house on a, on clay street. That was like $800 in rent for everyone. We got another roommate and it was kind of just like, it was beaten down, but we were like so happy we had our own place. Yeah, And it was like, I remember we used to just like walk around at night and it's like, you know, we were, cause we were like from Newport news. So it was Jackson like, Ward. Uh, like uh, Carver area. Carver area. Yeah. yeah. So like, you know, he was like close to VCU, but I was like, you know, I was riding my bike around everywhere. I was like, I was like walking and I was just like, oh my God, it's like the first time I lived in like a city in America. Isn't that terrifying though? I mean, it was like terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. You know, it was kind of like, it was a new, ex I was like, I think I'm a, I'm a fiend for new experiences. So I was kind yeah. of just like, this is awesome. Like it's something new. So how does that, I mean, you, you, you have in your mind that you're going to gig through this to p get rent and some beer money. How does it work? I mean, it was just a, a matter of getting money in because I didn't have any support from my family or anything like that. And it was kind of just like at this point I was on my own. It was a scary thing at first. I remember being like, oh, oh, I'm like on my own. But again, it was just like it was it was exhilarating to be like, oh, I'm on my own. Like I can I got to figure this out. And so it was just like kind of like dropping resumes off to places. I didn't know how to make a resume. So I just kind of like typed up, I guess, what would be a, considered a cover letter. What did you have in the back of your mind? You were going to wash dishes or do double gigs or barista. There was always, this is really before Uber sets yeah. foot in the gig, the full gig economy. You couldn't quite DoorDash or do other things no. back then or work Amazon deliveries. You really had to show up and bus tables or barista somewhere. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, everyone starts off as like a dishwasher or like a busboy or something like that. Luckily, the places that I worked at, I could just jump right on the line. And it was like, I don't know if it was some the way that I talked or the way that I like wanted to work it was weird i remember they let you work as a line chef they let, they let me work on the line um i think it was like a combination of like needing somebody and also like 
maybe they were just like so did you fake it till you make it i mean did you know how to work online? i guess so but i just like i think in those moments i wanted it so bad i wanted to work as a cook so bad that when i walked in and tried to apply to a place and they were like hey like you know we can start you off here and i'm like well if there's an opportunity to like work on the line like cold side or garmage or salads whatever like i would love to do that and i was like if you like you know we have stages and so like you get to like work for two hours and they could see what you can do essentially. And I would go in there and like, before I would go in, I would study the entire menu. I'd have like flashcards of each dish and like everything that went into it that was set on the menu. And I would kind of like sit there and like come an hour before and just watch, see how people are setting things up. And then like when I actually have to like come in for my stage, I would just do whatever they told me to. Like if they said to do something, I would just go and do it. And no one called you on this. No one called me on it. And it was one of those things where it wasn't it wasn't necessarily that I was doing bad work. I was just listening to everything they were saying, which I found out from an early age is like, if you want to be in this industry, you just you have to listen. All you have to do is just keep an open ear, keep an open mind and work really hard. It sounds simple, but I think one thing that I liked about it was the, the chaotic nature of a kitchen. Yeah. Usually it's like three or four people yelling at each other. Things kind of like going. So what everywhere. was the first restaurant you worked at in Richmond? Uh, Black Sheep. Oh, wow. Yeah. Making the gigantic submarine tankers. Yeah, I mean, to, right there. We used and- to have like a stack of like 12 bowls for oh, each wow. like salad that would go into the sandwiches. And then you'd like cut the sandwiches for them and stuff like that. And it was it was a really fun. I think it was like the perfect kitchen for me to start in because the, the cold side line was relatively simple because you are really just building salads and putting them on sandwiches. Yeah. But then everything else that goes into it. And then they had like an entree and they had the brunch. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, I remember I was like, I really, it was, it's really funny. I was like, I, re- I want to work brunch so bad because it was like there it was like the only service where they were like building items they were like building these dishes and brunch there was fairly slammed i remember it was every huge week. yeah i mean they would turn that place like three or four times you know 40 seat restaurant it's kind of insane to think about like a small place four or five turned. hours yeah. turning it four times but that's a part of that kitchen too it was you know a well-oiled machine they had i think at any point probably only two three guys in the kitchen and you were making ends meet with this one gig or you were double? I was doubling up and that's when I was also a barista at Alchemy because I d- couldn't find like a a morning kitchen job because usually morning kitchen jobs are prep jobs and usually prep jobs are given to people that are either tenured in or have a little bit more experience. Where did you did. learn how to barista? Like do the fine foam creations? Yeah, <laughs> I that was another thing where I kind of sought after it. I had a friend who was really into coffee. And like early on, and he was telling me like, dude, there's like all these flavor combinations or like these all these flavor profiles in coffee. It's amazing. Like 400 more flavor profiles than wine kind of thing. And he was like, you should really like learn about this because it'll help your palate. And I was like, oh, cool. And I was like, so then I was trying to find different coffee shops to like kind of work at. I worked at one that wasn't like a third wave, fourth wave, kind of like the more intricate. It was like more of just like a casual cafe. Um, and I just worked like the front register. But that was enough for me to get a, a nod to like work at Alchemy, which was their entire emphasis was how do we make this taste as good as possible? And Eric, through our interview process, I remember like he was really adamant on like, he's like, I can teach you how to do this. I just need someone who can like, work hard. So it was a great opportunity for me as someone who didn't have any experience to just be like, I'm willing to listen to you and work hard as long as you teach me. Wow. You know, and so that was the biggest thing for me was how do I get in line with, you know, or how do I figure out this aspect of it with the sole intention of training my palate? 
-hmm. And it was a big step forward for me, especially when I started to get into front of house management. And when I started to get into wine and learning about the other side of the restaurant business, understanding how wine works, how flavor pairings work, how beverages work in general. Um, and it was kind of like the seed that allowed me to like become a bartender and become proficient in wine um, later on. When did you say you were, you were kind of economically self-sufficient? You were making ends meet and had a little bit left on the side. I feel like there was never a point up until now that I had that I was economically self-sufficient. <laughs> I was living paycheck to paycheck for like probably until I got $300,000. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things where the industry doesn't really pay super well and a lot everything that I earned went into my pop-up. Hmm. I remember times where I would go into debt just trying to When was the first pop-up? Uh the first pop-up that I did on my own was I can't remember the exact date. Maybe 2016. It was at the Vale in their parking lot. I did dumplings under a brand that I called In-house. Mm -hmm. I remember I borrowed everything including a tent. And I drove around town on my four-door sedan, putting it all in. And all of the food costs, I remember I, I rented a small space out of a community kitchen, rolled dumplings for like 24 hours straight, and then took them all to the Vale, and it sold out like an hour. I remember that was the first time where I was like, I think this could be like that selling out factor, right? Oh, yeah. It's huge. It is huge. And at that time before pop-ups were like really starting to kind of gain some momentum like it is now... That was like the framework of how to be a successful pop-up. Like you make your food and you sell out with an hour, you make people want to come back. And so that was kind of the focus at first where I was like doing dumplings and I was kind of like, you know, people really love this product. And so they're going to keep coming at because they can't really get this product anywhere else. And then I'll keep doing them at breweries because it's a good snack. Um, and it, Were you able to do that profitably the first time around? I think I didn't actually make any money until like the third one. Mm. Um, and with another, the fixed costs and the sunk costs at the very outset. Once I, once I had all the equipment to actually make right. everything, um, but I was still paying off all this, like, you know, I had to get like two double burners that went outside, all the gasoline, the tables, the cloths, things like that. You know, even just like having like, and now it's like, I couldn't even imagine trying to buy paper goods now because it's like paper goods back then. Like, you know, you think about your plates or your to-go boxes and stuff like that. They've kind of like risen like 150% just like getting those. Yeah, like, yeah. I remember I went to go buy them the other day and I'm like, no way. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, but I think when I was trying to figure out, ultimately like the dumpling thing failed. Like I kind of just like let it simmer out. And it wasn't this thing where like I could have made it work, but I, I, I didn't, didn't want, want to. to. It was experimentation. It was a yeah. cul-de-sac. Well, it was figuring out how to run a, how to run a business, how to like market yeah. a product and how to get it out there, how to get people excited about it. Over time, I, I kind of like was always stewing on how would I go about making a pop-up again and how, how I would market it. And I think that's what kind of led me, like all of those experiences up until that point led me to be able to push Young Mother in a way that's made it successful. I hold that thought. Full disclosure, do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please follow, is fullderadio.com. Special shout out to our radio listeners on WVTF Radio IQ across the great commonwealth of Virginia. Holler if you too would like us on your air. My DMs are always open. If you're just joining us, we are in studio with Daniel Hardhausen. He is winner of HBO Max's first season of The Big Brunch. That landed him a $300,000 prize to help scale up his concepts. He is a uh, creator of the popular Richmond pop-up Young 
mother. You were talking about kind of uh, learning business chops on your own. I mean, was there a point where you had to consider credit card debt or other things to scale up? Or you said, you know what? I like this. I like selling out, but I want to consider the full pop-up as something that that maybe is worth much more of my time and creative energy. Yeah. I mean, a big thing I learned early on was like, my time is my biggest asset. And I think that was something that I like learning that on my own was fun. And then you hear, you get validated by other people saying like, yeah, that's, that's true. But the biggest thing I learned from all my experiences was just, was just marketing, how to market this product and how get, how to get people excited about it. And I think in the food industry, that can be sometimes the toughest hurdle for people is like, how do I actually get people excited to come in and eat? And then when they do eat, how do I make sure that it's executed in a way that is consistent. Well, Daniel, how do you get your head around working capital? I don't want to use high, you know, high finance or anything in here, but if a place like Adara, very highly esteemed restaurant near Jackson Ward and Carver, ask you to be its its guest chef and everything, and you come in, you have outlays, you have significant outlays. They can provide you kitchen, they can provide you marketing support, but you got to front the money for food costs and various other things. You take on a risk for every pop up. Yeah. How do the how do the economics work? I mean. It's a matter of just believing in yourself. I mean, I would essentially just save money to do pop-ups. Like at this point in my life, I was this is all I wanted to do. So when I would work five days a week as a bartender or as a front of house manager or whatever, I would budget out my costs that I need for a living. Everything else would just go into doing my events. And I'll put them up into a different account. And then, but this has become big business in Richmond. You see about the you know the the, the big pop up business. There's some pop ups that show up underground kitchen and everything do two hundred and fifty dollars a pop. Yeah, and people are like, here, take my money. I mean, like from my perspective, I think if you're able to have a high ticket item and you can do it consistently, there's a lot of money to be made there. I think it's a lot more financially stable for people if you're going to be doing things where you're going to people. So if you're doing quick executed items, burgers, hot dogs, things like that, and you're able to scale it in a way and get that food out. Because another part of it, it's like, for me, a big problem for a big hurdle for me was, okay, I can have 200, 300 people come to my pop-up, but if I can't serve all of those people, I'm not making any money. Right. Because I'm doing these dishes that have rigorous prep. The pickups are a little bit more- Give us an example. So say like even for an example, this last pop-up I did, I did uh, a couple of dishes from the show. So I did the Okarito, so it's a Konamiyaki burrito. And then I did this uh, gochujang gravy over fries, kind of like a poutine situation. Like a Korean poutine. Exactly. So for the burrito, it's like I'm making the shell every single order. I'm searing the meat in every single order. I mean, I'm hot holding things and we're kind of assembling, but it becomes this thing where I'm I'm essentially paying so much money for food costs because I'm creating each item from scratch. Mm. That's to say that if you're able to create a product that you're saving time on prep and you're saving money on prep, and then you're able to- That scales. That scales. Whereas for me, because of the type of restaurant that I want to have, the pop-ups are a way for me at first, it, I was never trying to make money off of them. Mm. The only sole reason I was doing these pop-up was to get my name out there. So that I could have a restaurant, 50, 60 seats that was packed out every night. So we have to talk about the act of God or the asteroid or whatever it is that crashed into your life. Where were you when you got this call from TV production house? I was I was working a shift at a dar. I think it was like a Wednesday or Thursday. I was bartending and I got a call at like 6.30 p.m. And I was like, hey, I got to run upstairs real quick. And I took the call upstairs during service. But they saw you on social? Found me on social. I don't know how my profile got put in front of them, but a casting director reached out to me and they were like, hey, you know, we have this opportunity. Would you be interested? I was like, sure. 
went through a couple rounds of interviews, didn't even find out it was the big brunch to like the fourth interview or that like Dan Levy was involved or however, how, how, how even big it was kind of just was like, they were like, tell your story, tell us what you cook, tell us why you cook. We'll go from there. And then from there, it was like, you know, once they told me what the show was about and that like, hey, you're being considered. I was like, oh, wow, that's like, that's really cool. This is really random. Kind of just came out of nowhere. I found out that even when I was on the show, I was, I think, one of the only people that got reached out. Everyone else had applied. Oh, wow. So it was another aspect of it where I was like, oh, wow. that's You know, and then you find out how many people actually apply, like in the thousands, like people, you know, and they weeded through them. And for some reason, when they had reached out to me and, and then, you know, f- saw my footage or saw my tapes or saw my interviews, they're like, we need to have that person. And, you know, when I, when I put it to terms like that, I'm like, that's insane. That is insane. They flew you to L.A.? And they put you up? Put me up in a hotel, month and a half. We we're actually like locked in our hotel. So it was an opportunity cost. You're not making money. You're not gigging. You're 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 spending out of pocket. It's not jury duty necessarily. No, no. I mean, we got a stipend like weekly for food and stuff like that. Yeah. But I mean, nothing substantial. So what was it really like? We've heard people who've been on Iron Chef and others who say it's highly choreographed and highly premeditated. They, I think from the start, they really wanted it to feel very real. They wanted that to translate. There were aspects of it where we had certain certain blockings. Most of the time when we were on stage and being filmed, it was just kind of us just besides like when we were cooking, it's kind of just us hanging out. A lot of the footage besides like cooking and judging was literally just us like hanging out in that kitchen, just like talking to each other, which was really cool because it felt very natural. And over time, we got to actually become friends with each other in a way that felt very genuine. And then like it's always stressful cooking under time, especially with like 20 cameras in your face. Yeah, yeah. But they did a great job at making everyone feel very comfortable. And Dan Levy specifically was like probably one of the nicest people I've ever met. Mm. And so he did a great job. He specifically curated not only like the cast and the judges, but also the crew, everyone that was part of production. So everyone on, on set had a great positive mentality and it was, it was a good, it was a good experience. And I mean, at what point did you know that you might well win this thing? I think not until like the third or maybe I think the third episode I was like, when I first got there, I didn't take it seriously because initially I was like, I'm not going to win this. Like I'm just here to have fun, like whatever. And then after the third episode, I was like, I might be able to like get it to the final. And then I think it was the seven when I actually made it to the final, I was like, I gotta, I gotta do this. And what dish put you over the top? I think the dish that put me over the top was probably the Japanese curry that I made in the last episode. I don't know. It's tough to think back. I feel like the first time I noticed something shift from the judges was after the third episode. We had these like uh we were able to use all natural ingredients from the Santa Monica Farmers Market. And I made uh, two dishes that did really well. I ended up winning that challenge. It was a bok choy otashi, which is like a marinated bok choy and, and a dashi, and then a, a braised daikon in a togarashi butter sauce. And they were both just like, and it was so different from anything I had made in the last two episodes. They're like, what is, like, how did you do, like, why'd you do this? Like, who taught you how to do this, whatever. And then I was like, I don't know. I want to know who taught you how to do this. I'd learn. I'd, I read, I, it's funny, like, I, I get asked that question a lot. And as far as like from the actual, technical cooking standpoint, I don't have a mentor or a chef that I worked under that influenced me or anything like that. It's like I have the food I ate when I was younger and the obsession to research about food consistently. And so from there, it's like I just learn techniques that I really like and then I implement them and I just cook them over and over and over again. So this is now three hundred thousand dollars. I didn't. Could I ask you after tax? Do you have tax considerations? And I am. Things? I am. I am responsible for the taxes. <laughs> so it says in the Times Dispatch: If all goes to plan, twenty twenty three stands to be an even bigger year for you. Your vision is to open a forty seat restaurant with a smaller back room that doubles as a sushi omakase bar and pop up incubator. 
the food critic Justin Lowe says, the anticipation is already killing me. So high expectations and seed funding now. Yeah. At a time when we know restaurants are shutting down and throwing in the towel with food inflation and labor costs being so high. Yeah, it's uh, it's I have a lot more flexibility than most people, um, just because I have cash on hand, and that's a good place to be with, especially the concept that I want to do. I want to do it right. I want to build it out right. I don't want to rush. Also, you know, there's the idea of capitalizing on the moment, but I have enough belief in my product that even if I were to take that extra time at that end when people come, it would make sense. What kind of overtures have people been making to you in the wake of of winning this show on HBO Max? I mean, you're very active on Instagram, all over social media. You've gotten great coverage locally, nationally. Have people reached out to you with offers you can't refuse? Yes and no. I think I've been very picky on that sense of like who I want to work with, but it is very validating to see people want to work with me. I think a big part of that is the food that I want to cook. It's like having autonomy over the food, but also like having it in a way that's obviously going to make money. You know, we're a business at the end of the day. But yeah, I mean, people have been reaching out. People have been, you know, friends, family, and then also complete strangers. And it's like trying to navigate through that and figure out like how I can kind of structure people in a way that that makes sense <laughs> moving forward. And that's another part of it too, is like when you have not only being on a show and getting the money, but being able to win something that's on an on a national platform that lives on on HBO Max that people binge and the ability to sell yourself is a lot easier and it's just like I'm very fortunate to be in the position right now where like I'm not I'm not scratching at the door for anyone but I have people coming to me wow do you have a location in mind a couple places I want to keep it as a destination vibe so I want to do outskirts of Richmond I'm looking at Manchester I'm looking at Churchill looking at areas in Northside I know I'm not going to find the perfect location but I want to have a good feeling about everywhere that I went. And right now, I just don't have anything that's like standing out to me, at least. The concept itself is going to be a big build out. That's another aspect. And so having the flexibility to do a build out, whether I'm going to be renting or buying is a huge decision. And so that's kind of the main components of what I'm looking for in properties right now. I mean, it's an incredible boost to get that paroxysm of press on HBO and to get the check on top of it and to have the flexibility in a kind of a weak environment where in a buyer's market or a startup's market or an entrepreneur's market for the restaurant business. I, you know, you came here seven years ago, but a lot of people talk about 2012 as being the inception moment where places closed down and places opened up again. And we've had Brittany Anderson on the show telling us about it. We've had Peter Chang telling us about where things started up. It's it's a it it seems to be an opportune time, a contrarian time to come in and start up. Yeah, and it's uh, the pandemic. You still feel a lot of the the remnants of that, right? And I think people are still dealing with how to bounce back from that. And I think we're hitting a point where people are figuring out, and they're figuring out how to rebound, or they're figuring out new concepts that they want to do. I think being able to have the opportunity to be in these places that there's opportunities and buildings that have had a lot of history and have had a lot of notoriety, and I think. The least I can do as somebody that I feel like, at least in my eyes, I'm a part of that next generation of Richmond chefs. I mean, I think we've had at least two prominent generations since the scene is kind of uplifted. And now we're kind of hitting that third, fourth generation of people that are trying to do stuff. Um, you know, as someone like me, it's like being able to find a way to spearhead that and keep it growing is a big part of what I want to do. And does the name Young Mother persist? Are you going to rebrand? Young Mother is going to be going to stay. Daniel Hardhausen, chef and owner of Young Mother RVA, champion of season one of HBO Max's The Big Brunch, which came with a nice $300,000 check for him to start his empire in full. Sir, it's a pleasure having you on. I know all of RVA Dine is pulling for you and definitely keep us posted. And don't mind bringing me dumplings either. Yeah, yeah, I'll bring them over. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) My pleasure. Full disclosure, stay with us.
If you're just joining us, we were talking to Daniel Hardhausen, pop-up chef extraordinaire and winner of the first season of The Big Brunch on HBO Max, which had me thinking back to some of the candor star chef Peter Chang shared with us in our 2016 live show in Jackson Ward. Chef Chang discussed his unlikely journey from poverty in Hubei, China, to his U.S. restaurant stardom. He's been recognized several times by the James Beard Foundation. And by way of introduction, Brandon Fox, the food and drink editor of Style Weekly, will be interviewing Peter Chang with us tonight. She was the one who had the cover story, Chef Peter Chang Wants to Feed America. And uh, I will let you go ahead. Jump ball, please. (laughs) Well, I think we should start at the beginning and find out a little bit about what it was like uh, growing up in China. I want to thank everyone for coming today. Especially um, Robin for introducing uh, me to everyone. I came from a province called Hubei. It's in central China. My old hometown was um, in the countryside, a very impoverished area. One of my strongest impressions of my youth was I was always constantly hungry. I had three uh, siblings, including me, there were three in the family. Our biggest ambition when we were young was to feed our stomach, and I would divide the food up so the bigger portion would go to me and the smaller portions would go to my siblings. While eating, sometimes we'll actually argue and fight over our food, um, even though we did um, recover our sibling love afterwards. And I grew up um, in my hometown for 18 years. And because I excelled in school, I had a chance to go to a large city called Wuhan, which is the capital of Hubei province, to continue my education. In 1981, I was 18 years old, and I started uh, my culinary education in Wuhan. And for two and a half years, um, I continued my education, and I graduated one of the, uh, the top in my school. Can I interrupt for one second? This is a little bit more of an interesting story. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, getting into college? Uh, because you told me one time you didn't really want to go to culinary school at all. And it was really on the advice of your grandmother that you applied yourself. Uh, 
这么一个一个职业。At the time in China,、um, being a chef was considered one of the lowliest of professions. 作为我们现在呃农呃，就是我读了很，就在读了书，并且成绩比较出色的人的话，是当时按照我自己的意愿，是绝对不做那个厨师的。And as somebody who excelled academically, I did not want to become a chef, which everyone looked down upon. 所以当时呢，那个那个呃，我是非常非常的不忍，就是当时我一进了那个学校的录取，呃，那个录取通知书上，我非常非常的不高兴。And when I received、um, the admission notice from the university, I was very very unhappy and very unwilling to continue this path. 但是主要的有三件事情呢，呃，促使我下决心要学要学那个厨师。But three things happened, and that changed my mind about becoming a chef. 第一件事情呢，就是我的周末，我的周末呢，就是那一年那个冬天，就是八一年的那个冬天，呃呃，出事了。Uh, the first thing was in the winter of 1981, my maternal grandmother became very ill and she passed. 在最后那个呃还有一口气的时候呢，给我说了一句话，就是我们是农村的孩子，要老老老实实的做人，踏踏实实的做事。And on her deathbed, she, using her last breath, told me that as somebody from the countryside, we have to do the best we can to learn a skill and to be the best we can. 当时呢，那个我的周末呢，就是我我我周末对我我因为我是长呃长孙，对我的是非常非常的疼爱，所以我非常非常的呃对我的周末呢，嗯，非常非常的尊敬尊重，也非常的呃爱我的周末。I Love my grandmother dearly. I was the oldest male grandchild, and therefore she also loved me best. And my respect for her、um, was great. And so I really respected everything she had to say to me. So when my Grandma told me these words, it was very important for me. This is the first thing. And when she said her parting words to me, it really made a very, very strong impression in my heart. The second thing is that in that year, in the Chinese village. 是是第一次有原来的那个那个就是公社，就是个一个大的那个呃那个那那那个那个结构，就是把这个田地啊，收拾分到这个米家米户，叫做包产到户。And the second thing was um one of the policies in China at the time was um the land was finally divided to individual families versus the commune system they used to have in the past. 那一年呢，呃，我的妹妹才十一岁。That year, my younger sister was only 11 years old. 但是有人包山倒户了以后，的家里呢，就是靠我，我我父亲是老中医，在外面，他没他不能够种田地，家里只有我靠我我妈妈一个人来种那个田地，所以呢，那个做不来那么多田地。我妹妹逼迫从那个学校里面，嗯，不能上学，就跟着我妈妈一块儿来来种地。And because now my family has a plot of land that we had to plan on our own, my father was a Chinese medicine doctor, and he could not take care of the land. So my mother had to do it by herself, and my younger sister was forced to leave school at a tender age of 11 to help out with the family farm. So, 当时的时候是为了让我能够在学校里面能够好好的上学，所以呢，他自己。呃，辍学了，因为我弟弟那时候很小，我弟弟不可能够种庄稼，所以呢，只有我妹妹。My little brother was even younger, and my sister had to make that sacrifice so I can continue going to school. So, to now, I am very grateful to my mother for giving me such a chance to 
providing me the chance to continue with education. Peter, if I may ask, um, when you are, it's, it's rumored that you put 2,000 miles a week on your SUV driving up and down the eastern seaboard, checking in on restaurants, meeting with investors. How do you jibe this existence right now? I mean, you're featured in The New Yorker by Calvin Drillon. They're writing about you in The New York Times, in The Wall Street Journal. You're on TV with this pastoral beginning and your grandmother's illness and dying wish and your sister's. I can't imagine what it's like to reconcile the very capitalistic here and now with where you came from. One of the um, characters that I developed growing up in the countryside was um, resilience and hardworking. And I have indeed um, experienced a lot in life, and some of them weren't pleasant, but I am re re I insistent that I continue on this path and do the best I can. But without um, any sacrifices on my part, um, I cannot uh, become successful. And me traveling um, along the coast, and it's, it's so that I can know the market better and to better provide the American audience with what I have uh, to give. 2,000 miles a week, I heard. That's incredible. Um, <laughs> so uh, after culinary school, what happened next? Uh, you had to go through, I know, a series of examinations, and um, how did how did that lead to the next point in your career? So after what happened uh, with my family and my background, um, I, I studied very hard in school. So and to practice my basic skills, I would practice flipping the walk by filling it with sand and practice for up to four hours. And by the end of that, um, your arm is lead, like lead. There, you cannot... And to practice um, his skills with a knife, he would roll up newspaper and cut them into tiny thin strips for hours on end. Um, did, did everybody work this hard in culinary school? 
Was this normal? Oh, he was the only one in his class who did all these extra practice on the side. And because of my hard work, um, I graduated first in my class. <laughs> Peter, fast forward a little bit for me, if you will. Timestamp your first day in the United States, the flight here. Where were you? What was it like? What were your impressions? Well, uh, so he entered the States um, in Detroit and he had two hour layover. He didn't speak any English at the time. And so he wandered around the, the airport and finally landed in Dunkin' Donuts. And using body language and various other means of communication, he was able to get his first cup of coffee in the US. <laughs> And I realized that this coffee was indeed different from coffee I had in China. I put six packs of sugar in my coffee. <laughs> and because of how hungry I was at the time, um, the pastry plus the coffee was uh, quite enjoyable to me. So So ever since then, whichever city I visit, I always try to seek out a Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> it's a sponsor, it's a sponsor. We're gonna retroactively, retroactively ask Dunkin' Brands to sponsor this show. Hit him up for something. Tweet it out, people. Do it. Um, <laughs> take me outside the airport. Did you walk into a McDonald's? Were you walking? Was it DC? What was the first time you tried McDonald's? Tell us. <laughs> Once I um, transferred to Washington, D.C., uh, the embassy sent people to come and pick us up. So I did not have a chance to actually step outside the airport and visit uh, the real U.S. at the time. Between my wife and me, we only had $20 on us at the time. And after getting two cups of coffee and two pastries, um, we had maybe $14 left, so we didn't um, really wanted to order anything else at that point. You were listening to an excerpt from our 2016 live show, An Evening with Chef Peter Chang. Catch the whole episode wherever you get your pods. We are on NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Full disclosure, special thanks, of course, to Claire Morgan at Notterly. 
Follow along on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And a shout out to our radio listeners again on WVTF Radio IQ across the great state of Virginia. And catch me on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now every week. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Thank you.